Good morning, church. Open your Bibles with me, please, to Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew. We're not going to read it yet, but I want you to be there ahead of time. The title that I have for you this morning is Life's True Purpose. Life's True Purpose. I like this one particular passage because God has a way of explaining life's purpose to mankind through the particular passage that we're going to be looking at today. And believe it or not, most people in society today, and I know that I'm preaching to the choir because I know that you know where I'm, where I'm coming from when I say these words. Most people in society do not understand what purpose is. Most people in society do not know what their purpose is. Most people in society will never understand their purpose in life. But nevertheless, it is that one billion dollar question. What is life's true purpose? My goal in this message this morning is to present to you my take from this one particular ta- passage, what our purpose is in life. I'm not here this morning to talk to you about philosophies and things along those lines because uh, I appreciate it, but philosophy always leads to an unfulfilled life. I want to I get a little deeper than that. I want to I give you fundamental truth this morning about life's purpose. But before we get to the one particular passage, you can put your Bible down for a moment if you like. I, I want to give you an overview of this book. Let me ask, how many of you read through the book of Matthew this week? Lots of you, lots of you. Amen. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to reading the Word of God. I know personally that God is looking to do an extraordinary thing in our lives. The most successful churches that exist on this planet are the churches that read the Bible together. They're the strongest. They may not necessarily be the largest, but success in any church is not determined by its congregational size, its membership size. It's determined by its spiritual quality. And that can only grow and develop within us as we delve into the Word of God. So we read through the book of Matthew, and quite obviously the book of Matthew was written by the Apostle Apostle Matthew. He was a tax collector. And the book, some theologians differ. Bear with me for a moment here. I want to give you the background story on this book. Uh, Just a moment of teaching, if you will. Very briefly, very general. Theologians differ um, in when the book was actually written. There Many theologians say the book was written between the year 60 and 65 A.D. Other theologians believe it was written between 85 and 95. Most theologians agree that Mark was written first, um, although there are some theologians that actually believe Matthew was written first. Um, Study it for yourself. It's an interesting read. Um, The book is not, and I repeat, the book is not a journalistic Peace. When you, if you do any reading, any reading whatsoever from the secular perspective, because there are a lot of secular authorities out there that have their, they present their two cents on on what the gospels actually mean, and they like to say that the the gospels were a journalistic piece. It was just 
a, a historical in that sense, in that sense alone, but I disagree wholeheartedly. The book of Matthew, like any other gospel or any other book in the Bible, it was actually the, it's actually the inspired Word of God. How many say amen to that? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 reads, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The book of Matthew was not, is not, never will be a journalistic piece. It's, it is the inspired Word of God. And let me ask you this before we proceed. How many of you are experiencing a, a measure of change in your life already? Just, just two weeks into this new year um, and studying the Word of God as a congregation. How many of you are experiencing change on the inside? I know, I know you're looking for the change on the outside. You're looking for the fireworks and the bills being paid. Listen, I, I never promised you that. I never promised you that. I, what, what I can promise you is that if you continue reading the Word of God, that if we as a congregation continue to w read the Word of God together, wonderful things, wonderful things are going to begin to manifest themselves in our lives. Let's continue. The book of Matthew was presented... Um, actually, the author Matthew actually presents Jesus Christ to us as the King of the Jews, and others say that Matthew, his theme of this of his book, is actually presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Most would agree that Jesus Christ is presented as the King of the Jews. Just think about that for a moment. The book of Matthew is actually the one gospel that bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. No other gospel refers to the Old Testament more than Matthew does. It's the perfect bridge between testaments, and I truly appreciate that. I think, it, I think there's about as close to a hundred references in the book of Matthew alone to the Old Testament. And I believe that's extremely significant because Matthew takes an apologetic stance in his writing. An apologetic stance. In other words, he's taking on the stance of a defense of the gospel or a defense of Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews or Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Matthew was, for the most part, writing this letter to Jews, to, to not only followers, Christian Jews, but Jews in general who did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, who did not believe that Jesus Christ was the King of the Jews. They were skeptics. They flat out didn't want to believe. They rejected Jesus Christ. They dismissed His Word. They dismissed everything He had to say, even though they were astounded by the miracles that He performed. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, most Jews rejected Him. And yet Matthew takes a particular interest in them. He wanted to connect the dots, if you will, so that they could understand who Jesus Christ actually was. God manifested in human form. Consider this verse, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It actually reads, Therefore, 
the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You shall call his name Emmanuel. It's amazing that Matthew actually points to this one particular reference in the Old Testament. And it's extremely significant. I won't spend too much time, but it's worth noting here nonetheless. Because Matthew, he actually opens up his gospel by, um, with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. His descendants. And he actually references in the very first verse. Look at, look at your Bible. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the Son, referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or rather the Son of... Let me see, let me get there. The Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And then he proceeds with tracking the, the lineage of Jesus Christ from Abraham to Joseph, who was Mary's husband. And he validates... Because the Jewish people, they actually, historically, they, they, they actually, they kept their, traditionally, they kept the genealogy. They knew who they were, where they were from, so on and so forth. So when the Apostle Matthew, many years later, he references to Jesus Christ as the son of David, as the son of Abraham, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He was connecting the dots, and they missed it. They missed it. He actually references Jesus Christ as the miracle child, if you will. The virgin would one day give birth. And you shall call his name Emmanuel. Imagine that. What a startling claim that Matthew actually presents to his people. And that passage in Isaiah 7.14 is actually a key sign concerning the arrival of the, um, of the Messiah. A key, a key sign. All the Pharisees. All the scribes, all the Sadducees, even though they differed in their dogma, if you will, they were all familiar with the scriptures in the Old Testament concerning the soon coming King, the Messiah. And what Matthew does is that he actually connects those dots for them concerning Jesus Christ. And ultimately, they still went on to crucify him. Let's move forward. Matthew goes on to tell us why Jesus came and that he died to offer salvation to everyone who believed. So he moves on from the genealogy. He goes on. He talks about the birth of Jesus Christ. He presents to us the Beatitudes, if you will. And he goes on to talk about the, the wonderful and mighty miracles that Jesus Christ went on to perform. For what purpose? Why did Jesus Christ perform, perform the miracles that he did? Because he wanted to draw the masses to him. He wanted them to hear his voice. He wanted them to hear the voice of God coming forth from him so that they may have the opportunity to be saved. Moving forward, Jesus Christ goes on. He's about to die. He has the, the Garden of Gethsemane experience. But yet, right before he died, check this out, right before he died, Jesus Christ, he makes a declaration concerning his view about our purpose in life. And that's where we find ourselves today in our passage in Matthew chapter 22. Turn in your Bibles, please. Matthew 22. And we're going to be reading from verses 34 
through 40. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. We want to talk about purpose here this morning. What is your purpose? Everybody have it? Say amen. Verse 34 reads, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the process. And the prophets, I'm sorry. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Just think about that for a moment. They tried to test him. Round after round, they confront Jesus Christ in this one particular chapter. Most of you read the chapter, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who didn't, take a peek at this one particular chapter. And you see how they, they all take turns to, to sort of gang up on Jesus Christ. Because they wanted to, they wanted to condemn Him. They wanted to, to sort of draw Him out, if you will. Get Him to say something that was contrary to the law of Moses, so that they can have reason to condemn Him. That's what they wanted to do. And yet Jesus Christ, right here in this passage, this one Lord asked him a question. Well, which is the greatest of commandments? Thinking that Jesus Christ was going to um, contradict Moses and what was written in the Old Testament. Jesus responds by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. And the book of Mark goes a little further. He says, with all your strength. And the, sec and the second commandment is... Similar to these, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus Christ is essentially saying to these people, He said, you hypocrites, you reject me and dismiss my message, believing that I'm contradicting the law of Moses, but know for certain that my demand on you is this. Life's purpose is to live in fellowship with me and to live in fellowship with with one another. Because their question was actually going to the point of life's purpose. Just consider that. Do a little a research on your own and you will see that's what they were actually asking Jesus Christ. Although they were trying to ensnare him. So there are five points that Jesus Christ presents to us from this passage concerning life's purpose for mankind. And it begins with love. It begins with love. It says, look at verse 37 with me. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That would be the first point. The second point would be, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. The third point would be, you shall love the Lord thy God with all your mind. The fourth, the fourth point, taking from one of the other Gospels, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength. And lastly, you shall love your neighbors the way you love yourself. It's interesting the way God actually delivers this message to us 
in this one particular chapter. How many struggle, or don't raise your hand, but just think about this in your mind. How, how often do you struggle with life's purpose? How often do you struggle with meaning in life? Or any significance for that matter? How often do you just simply go through the motions, walking through life aimlessly, wondering why it is you were created by God in the first place? It's a legitimate, or those are rather legitimate questions. Many people struggle with meaning and purpose in life. Most people that come to church struggle with meaning and purpose in life. And I'm not saying that to be harsh in any way, shape, or form. I'm just simply presenting a challenge. We're not asking for names of individuals this morning, um, those of us who may be struggling. I'm there too from time to time. It isn't every single day that I wake up in the morning and I feel like serving God. Who feels like serving God all the time? Anybody? Who feels like serving God every time? I don't always feel like serving God. I don't always feel the right way. But I know how I need to be living. And there's a vast distinction between the two. And oftentimes, because of that disconnect, it gets difficult to actually live these things out. But in this Bible, in this passage, Jesus Christ gives us this point, these points so that we could understand life just a little bit better from His perspective. What is life truly all about? Point number one is, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart. What does that even mean? With my fleshly heart? Is that what he's saying? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Greek word here for heart is cardia. And it denotes the center of all physical and spiritual life. It's not just a natural interpretation or natural meaning in this one particular verse. Cardia denotes the center of all physical and spiritual life. Furthermore, in terms of these definitions, the vigor and sense of physical life. Secondly, the center and seat of all spiritual life, i.e., the fountain and seat of our thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. Jesus Christ essentially is asking for our lives. He wants our meaning. He wants our purpose. He wants our devotion. In other words, he's asking for our intentional devotion because it's the only way that he can restore us, mankind, to himself. Think in terms of what we read last week in Genesis chapter 3. How many read through Genesis? At least Genesis chapter 3. We read about the fall of mankind in the beginning. Immediately after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, mankind entered into a long season that one could easy, easily categorize as identity crisis. One day we're going to talk about that here. Identity crisis. And ever since the fall of mankind in the beginning, man has been striving for meaning and purpose. In our prayer group this morning, we were talking a little bit about that. How man is looking to other gods. Even though there is no God besides the Almighty God. Are there? There is no other God. Yet Satan himself, he masquerades himself in, in that manner. Because we all have this innate passion or desire 
this drive, if you will, to worship something, to worship someone. And ever since then, Satan, Satan has been taking advantage of that concerning us. Identity crisis. And Jesus Christ in this passage, he's telling us, if you want to get right with me, if you want me to make a difference in your life, the ultimate difference that you need in your life, you have to give me your heart. How is it like to live life as a believer with a heart uninvolved? Have you been there? Have you ever been there? I've been there. I know exactly what it looks like to serve the Lord without the heart's involvement. It's called hypocrisy. Isn't that right? And it's a nasty experience. It's, it's, in fact, it's worse than the life that I lived in the streets. I ran the streets in Philadelphia for a long time. You know it. I'm not even going to go there. But my experience in the church without my involvement in it was far worse than any experience in the streets. Think about that for a moment. Far worse. James the Apostle says, To him who knows how to do good and does it not, to him it is. To him who knows how to do good and does it not, to him it is, it is sin. So here it is, I found myself in the church. I'm experiencing the things that pertain to God in a measure, but yet my heart is not involved. I was a greater sin, sinner in the church than I was outside of the church. Listen to Jeremiah and what he has to say about the heart in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Or your version may read desperately sick. Who can understand it? Just think. It's the reason why God wants our hearts. Because our hearts are evil. Not our natural, fleshly heart, but the fallen man on the inside. Who we really are, our soul, because of the reality of sin, because of the existence of sin in our lives, you and I are capable of doing all sorts of heinous things. Just turn your back on God today, and tomorrow you are the worst of the worst. Paul the Apostle says, I am chief of all sinners. Because he knew what he was guilty of. He knew where his heart, what his heart had driven him to do. And so Jesus Christ, he takes the time to place this, this first emphasis on the heart. Give me your heart. Listen to Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5. It says, trust in the Lord with all your, with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. We have to give our hearts over to God because if we're going to enjoy this life called Christianity, our hearts have to be placed in the hands or in the bosom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've got to give up the heart. We have, if we want to have any peace whatsoever, this side of heaven, we must surrender our hearts. Listen to this one, Psalms 51, verse 10. I love this song, Joey. Maybe one day we can sing it. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That should be our passion. That should be our desire. God is asking us for our hearts because He knows what can, in fact, become of you and I when we surrender our hearts to Him. 
Life is just not possible without the involvement of our hearts. Listen to this verse. Proverbs 23, verse 26. It says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Solomon may have penned these words, but God was speaking through him. He says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Point number two, you should love the Lord your God with all your soul. That's verse 37 as well. In fact, most of these points are taken from that one verse. You should love the Lord your God with all your soul. What does that even mean? The Greek word for soul is suke. And it means a living being, a living soul. In other words, the essence of who we are. God is asking for my life because he created me. Life can never be understood if I choose to live it on my terms. Your soul is the part of us. Our soul is the part of God created every, every part of us, right? We know that. But we know that in the book of Genesis, after he created, after he formed man from the dust of the earth, man was standing erect. He was standing straight up, but without any life in him. And so God personally breathed in his nostrils. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, I believe it is, and man became a living soul. God breathed life into us. It's the essence of who we are. Many people say the, the soul is the seat of our passions, the seat of our will, the seat of our determination. And so it's vitally important why Jesus Christ asks us to surrender that part of ourselves to him, because without it, we cannot have an experience with him this side of heaven. It's just not going back to the title of the message, life's true purpose. Is it possible to experience life, true life, without surrendering our souls to Jesus Christ? What does life actually look like without surrendering our souls to Jesus Christ? I know exactly what some of you are thinking. There is no salvation unless we surrender our souls to Jesus Christ, right? Yes? There is no born-again experience unless we surrender our souls to Jesus Christ. Therefore, there can never be any purpose this side of heaven unless we surrender our souls to Jesus Christ. That's exactly why. Look, at the, look up the statistics. I look up statistics all the time. And look at the rate of suicide among the wealthy. And you will be astounded that perhaps among that list of those who are actually committing suicide, the greater num number is attributed to those who are wealthy. Because money can't make you happy. Or rather, I should say, money cannot give you peace. It can give you happiness, but happiness is temporal. And it's limited in its scope. It's not going to fulfill your life. Look at these verses, um, Psalm 62, verse 1, concerning our soul. It says, For God alone, my soul awaits in silence. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Imagine that. 
imagine that. Experiencing purpose this side of heaven when we recognize that salvation can only come when we surrender our souls or our lives over to Jesus Christ. Psalms 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving. Maybe your version reads, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I love that verse because when we, it's clearly stating that when we surrender ourselves over to God, when we give that portion, that our will over to God, He gives us salvation, He gives us peace, He gives us meaning, He gives us purpose. Everything becomes clear to us, doesn't it? I remember a time when it was, it was perhaps the, the darkest time in my life. The absolute darkest time in my life. I had, I had experienced lots of bad things this side of heaven. Running the streets of North Philadelphia. Um, standing at gunpoint from time to time. Fighting with somebody who was looking to kill me with a knife. Um, falling off buildings into alleys, getting hit by cars. I mean, you name it, I've experienced it, right? Fighting for my dear life at the hands of some rival gang member. Those were some dark times. But never, like that season in my life, those first few months after my incarceration, never like that season, never like that season. Why? Because I was utterly hopeless. When I was running the streets, I had a sense of happiness because I was making a lot of money. I had the girls and the toys and all those things. And I was blinded by those things. But when they closed the bar doors behind me, and I recognized for the verse, she's, she's thinking, man, i got to leave this church. Don't leave, please. Don't, the Sherry, don't leave. Don't leave, Sherry, please. We, we love you. It's like, who's this guy and why am I here? Lord, her eyes were like this. Did you see her look back to the door? Don't leave her. And I remember, I remember how dark that season was because I was, I was empty. When the bars closed behind me, the world that I created for myself fell apart. It fell apart. It was clear to me. It was all a lie. It was all a lie. And now I'm sitting behind bars and I'm asking myself, what now? And I had no answers. None whatsoever. Until one day, a fellow inmate chose to talk to me about Jesus Christ. And I began to truly breathe for the very first time in my life. And I began to experience life's true purpose, even though I was locked away for a season of my life. It's not possible to enjoy life's purpose without surrendering our souls over to God. Listen to Psalms 42, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. My salvation and my 
God. The psalmist understood that in order to truly have an encounter with heaven, this side of heaven, we must surrender our souls or our lives over to God. Our soul, your soul, is the essence of who you are. It's the part of you that God created to live forever, for eternity. And one day, according to the author of the book of Hebrews, we will stand before Him in judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the, but after this, the judgment. We will stand before God to give an account of this life we've been given. And I should say, it's worth noting... That this point, the soul, is not just a reference to the inner man. It's a reference to the whole of our lives. My soul, my spirit, my body, my possessions. Everything concerning me, everything concerning you belongs to God. Everything. And one day we're going to stand before Him in judgment and we're going to have to give an account of everything. He's asking for our lives. And until then, there can be no purpose. Point number three, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind. With all your mind. The Greek word is di, dianoia. Dianoia. I think I got it right. And it, the definition is our thoughts. The mind as a faculty of understanding, feeling, and desiring. The faculty of the mind or its disposition, by implication, its exercise. That's the emphasis. It's exercise, the way we exercise our minds. In other words, God is asking for our commitment and our determination. Without it, there can be no fellowship with God. Without it, there can be no fellowship with one another. Now, remember, we have to correlate this with the title. The title is Life's True Purpose. Jesus Christ was asked a question concerning life's true purpose. What is the greatest commandment? These were individuals who believed they were observing the commandments of the Lord. They believed they had meaning and purpose. That's why he referenced the law of Moses. That's why anybody back then followed the law of Moses. They wanted to live life according to God's perspective for themselves, for their lives. And so he asked the question, trying to ensnare Jesus, and Jesus says, this is life's true purpose. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. You should love your neighbor as yourself. But concerning this one particular point, you should love your neighbor, you should love your, the Lord your God with all your mind. Romans chapter 12 Verse 2, I think, is the best passage in the Bible that we can look at concerning this point. The very best. What does it actually mean? What does it look like to actually serve the Lord with our minds? How do we apply ourselves so that we can experience purpose in life with regard to our mind? Look at Romans 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern the will, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm going to read that again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be you transformed 
by the renewal of your mind. Remember, Jesus Christ is addressing the issue of purpose. And here it is, he references the mind. Because without a commitment on your part and mine to him, we cannot ever, by any stretch of the word, experience purpose this side of heaven. Our commitment and our determination to serve God according to his will for our lives is mandated in order to experience life. How successful were you in life without the the application of the word of God in your life? Was your life better than it is right now? Before you came to Christ? How many's life, how many of you experienced a better life before Christianity than after? Is it even possible to experience true life without Jesus Christ? In no way, shape, or form. This point, Jesus Christ is asking us to make a commitment. To make a commitment to him. What does it look like? Sometimes we struggle with commitment. It's important to belabor this point. Because we don't always feel the right way all the time. But where is your faith? Your faith determination. Your faith commitment. Where's your commitment? Oh, we know how to commit ourselves to our jobs. Because without doing so, you can get You can get fired. But where is our commitment and determination to the things of God? What's your faith like today? What is God saying to you today concerning the application of your mind to your salvation? How you are supposed to commit and devote your lives to Him. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. He says, it's our reasonable service. He says that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The mental, the mental uh, faculties are involved there, if you will. We have to make a commitment, a determination to surrender our lives over to God. Yesterday we went over to Hollenbeck Park and we were talking to a, uh, an individual by the name of Tony and a young lady by the name of Christina. And it was, it was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge because they were, their minds were fractured and they were extremely incoherent. And it was very difficult to make heads or tails um, about anything that they were saying. But we took our time with them. We loved on them. Finally, we were able to make sense. We were able to put two and two together, to thread their words together and understand what they were trying to say to us. And a guy named Tony, he was... Um, he was having a difficult time with us because initially he didn't want us in his face. We went over, he knew who we were, what we were about, and he said, oh boy, ahí vienen los aleluya. Here come the, <laughs> watch yourself, watch yourself. Here come the hallelujahs. No, and, but they couldn't run because they were trapped in that gazebo. One way in and one way out. Right? And so we took our time with Christina, and she was all over the place, and I'm like pulling my hair out. And it was very difficult to make heads or tails of what she was trying to say. I, I wanted to try to understand whether she understood anything I was saying. But Tony, Tony understood. And in the end, he revealed his difficulty to us. 
talking about the mind. He could not bring himself to accepting the grace of God. He couldn't quantify it. Those were his words. I can't quantify grace, he says to me. Therefore, I cannot accept it. And we did everything we could, even involved Stephanie, right? We, we, we presented an illustration. It's the gift of God. All you have to do is accept it. Just apply yourself to accepting the gift of God. And God will do wonderful work in your life. And what happens next was to our surprise. The man began to sob. But he was resisting, right? He was resisting with everything he had. You know what that battle is like when, you, when you, you have this strong urge to cry, yet you can't keep it in? But you're wrestling, you're trying to keep it in. That's ugly. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a really ugly experience. I mean, the, the face is just contorted all over the place. You're battling all these feelings and emotions. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And, you, and you're looking really ugly. <laughs> and he was looking really ugly. But the man was in pain. He was in pain. And I told you, and I told him, we told him. God wants, to, wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that he loves you. And all you have to do is accept it. Just accept the gift of God. Don't fight it. Don't wrestle with it. Finally, we left. He made sort of like a, sort of like a commitment you will he spoke some words into his life and hopefully hopefully he made the decision to know Jesus Christ how many know that praying a prayer doesn't determine salvation how many know that I know religiously speaking what what are you saying pastor yeah salvation has never been determined by a prayer never 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 salvation is always determined by the conversion of the heart doesn't matter what words come out of your mouth. If your heart's not involved, you'll never be saved. Some people, some people here, I would imagine, have gotten saved in complete silence. I got saved by myself in a prison cell. Nobody leading me. I recognized my sin and my need for Jesus. And I cried out to him in the way that I knew how. And he saved my soul. He saved my soul. Point number four. This was taken from Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. It's Mark's perspective on Jesus' response to this one particular lawyer. And he adds one particular word in there. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength. And I wrestled with that one. The Greek, the Greek word for strength is iskus. It means my ability, my might, my power, my strength, or my actions. And it could be defined as my lifestyle. In other words, God is asking me to live out the truth of His Word. In order for you and I to experience purpose in life, we have to make the determination to live out His Word. He's asking us to change. Colossians chapter 3, 17 and 23. Timothy Lansing would appreciate these words. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Verse 23, Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto man. This is where the rubber meets the road. It's not enough to know about God. Listen, you can go to seminary. You can have multiple PhDs in theology. You can know the Bible. You can memorize it from cover to cover. Theoretically, you can know the Word of God. But if there's no practice in your life, what does it profit? This is where action is required. Jesus Christ gave them His take on life's purpose. He talked about attitude. He talked about the disposition of the heart. He talked about the, the significance of commitment. And all of those wonderful things that are important. But now... He addresses the need to begin to live it out. Now you must live it out. James put it beautifully. James chapter 1 verse 22. Be ye, be ye, come on one more time. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. What does it look like for you and I, this side of heaven, to live out our Christianity without any action? Or better still, because that's what this point speaks to. Change. It's talking about change. Jesus Christ is asking us to surrender our lives over to Him for the purpose of change. He's asking for my lifestyle. There are many versions of Christianity in the market today, if you will. Many versions. And you know them just like I know them. And most versions of the gospel... Do not place an emphasis on change whatsoever. With a show of hands, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Come on, don't be scared. Let me see. You know what I'm talking about. Most versions of the gospel in, in society today don't, do not demand any change on its followers at all. None. You can stay who you are. You can live life the way you're living right now. It's up to you. Don't worry about it. That's the kind of version you get in the mega churches, right? Go ahead and live the way you want to live. Just come to church and give us your, your tithe. Everything is going to be all right. Don't worry about it. The sky is always blue. God accepts you just as you are. And go ahead and stay the way you are. No demand whatsoever on holiness. First Peter chapter 3, I believe it is, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. It's not saying be you perfect. That's not what we're preaching this morning. It's not saying be fanatical or overzealous about the things of God. That's not what we're talking about today. It's talking about being faithful. God is asking for our faithfulness today. And the last point, point number five, it says... This is taken from verse 39. Matthew 22, verse 39. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Greek, there, the Greek word for neighbor is plation. It means simply any other person besides yourself. Thy fellow man, thy neighbor, according to Christ... 
any other man, irrespective of nation or religion, with whom we live or whom we chance to meet any other person besides yourself. And the challenge here by Jesus Christ is absolutely clear. The challenge is for us to live in complete harmony with one another. Immediately when I read that, I thought about Romans chapter 12. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And look at verse number 9 with me. Romans 12. I'm almost done. Romans chapter 12. Say amen if you have it. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, let love be genuine. Abhor, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now I'm jumping some verses. Um, so let me tell you in advance what I'm reading. I'm reading 9 through 10 and then 13 through, ter- through 21. 9 through 10, 13 through 21. It says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. What an amazing word to put in there. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to, the, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Hmm, really? That's actually in the text? It means I can't get even? It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow! It's amazing. One of the most difficult things to do, to get along with somebody who clearly doesn't get along with us. To actually draw close to somebody who refuses, by all means, to draw close to us. Especially somebody who harmed us in the past. Or somebody we've offended in the past. And somehow is unable to accept our forgiveness today. It goes both ways. The point is that we have to live in harmony with everyone else. With everybody. Yes, it is true that there are some people in your life with whom there's a quarrel that you'll never be able to make amends with. There are some people in my, in my past, in my life... That I'm just never going to be able to have a conversation with. Because of the harm that was done. From on my part towards that person, vice, vice versa. But in my heart, where it matters the most, I've settled it with God. And in my heart, God knows I've made an attempt, whenever possible, to do right 
by my neighbor. That's how we're supposed to live. When we live that like that, is there any room for gossip? There's no room for gossip in that, right? There's no room for hatred toward one another. There's no room for the, for the indifference that oftentimes exists in the house of God. There's no room for the apathy that often exists in the house of God. God's people, we are called to love one another. And I say that with intention because I know what happened some time ago, a year and a half ago, or perhaps a little bit longer. And I know that's still a sore spot in the hearts of some of you. I know it because I sit down with some of you. It's still a, it's still a difficulty to deal with. Yet what is Jesus Christ mandating today? Let's recap. Life's true purpose. What is it really about? How do we experience any meaning, any purpose, this side of heaven whatsoever? I mean, is it about an education? Is it about all the toys, the right car, the right woman, the right children, the right family? Can we strive for those things and somehow experience true purpose in life? In no way, shape, or form. Jesus Christ narrows it down to love. Loving Him and loving one another. Loving Him and loving one another. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Because He wants your passions. He wants your will's involvement. Your will's involvement. God cannot fellowship with us. We cannot fellowship with God if our will is not involved. The prophet Amos chapter 3 verse 3. It asks a question. Can two walk together without being in agreement? Can two of us leave here this afternoon when I'm finally done with my big mouth, right? Can two of us actually leave here and walk down the street together without having been, without first establishing an agreement to do so? Is it possible? No. In no way, shape, or form. If you and I are going to relate on any level, we have to agree to do so. God wants to establish a, a wonderful experience for you and I, this side of heaven. It begins with the heart. Then the soul is important because we, it allows us, it affords us to understand that my life as a whole belongs to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. It says, what? Don't you know that you are, that you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and that you are not your own? Therefore glorify God in your souls and in your body, which are God's. We belong to Him. We were created by Him. And we will give an account of our lives. Thirdly, our mind. Because without commitment, there can be no relationship and ultimately no purpose. Because purpose comes from God and God alone. Run the world over multiple times. Acquire all the wealth that you want and you'll never be, never be happy. You'll never have any meaning and purpose in life. None whatsoever. What did Mark say in chapter 8, 34? He says, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Jesus said that. Because there is no life apart from him. And then your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, your lifestyle, your abilities.
That means live out the gospel. It's a verb. He's asking us to live it out. He's, action, he's asking us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then, of course, lastly, Joe, you ready? Sing a song. The worship team is welcome to come up at this time. They're saying, okay, well, what are we going to sing? Nah, just kidding. Joey's always got a song in his heart. Right? <laughs> He's always got a song in his heart. Stand with me. Let us stand. Let us stand as we sing out this morning. And do not forget, the reading for this week is... You ready for this drum roll, somebody? The book of Exodus. <laughs> Try to read through the book of Exodus. I'm not sure how many how many chapters there are. Forty. Uh, wow. Somebody. Anybody read it already? No. Okay. Good. Let us sing. Let us let us worship the Lord.
not here, so I want to take advantage of, of sharing this with you now. Um, it's concerning Tim. I want to thank you for your commitment to this church. Many of you are givers um, to this church. And we've act, we're actually able to meet budget because so many of you faithfully give. And I want to continue to, I want to encourage you to continue to do so. To actually sow into whatever it is you believe God is doing in this church. If you love this church, um, then express it in your giving for sure but I want you to consider if you will Tim and how God will perhaps move in your heart to be a blessing to him I know that we have some some of you that are already giving to the church in his name because um, you know that Urban Hope LA is going to be starting here very soon right how many would agree that it's an extraordinary endeavor here for this church right it is huge it is huge at the heart of it is outreach and to make a difference not only in our lives but in this one particular community we're going to have teams coming in from all over the country to actually contribute their talents and their abilities into reaching this community the community of Norwalk and he's going to have his hands full with that work, talking about Tim and Janine. They're going to have their hands full. So many of you are already giving to him. Some of you, um, we, can't, we don't know who's given to CE National. We, don't, we just can't see that information. Um, but I want to encourage you, if you are able to give, if God has put it in your heart um, to be a blessing to Tim, what we do know is that he doesn't necessarily have enough coming in to sustain himself. If, when he leaves his secular job. So if God touches your heart, if God moves on your heart to be a blessing to him, see somebody. See me. See Cheryl. I don't, and I think, I don't think she's here. Um, see, um, see him. That's right. Thank you very much. That's right. See him directly. How can I be a blessing? Just see him directly and say, Tim, I have the means to do so. How can I be a blessing to you? Or you can contact CE National. We have that information on our website. Be a blessing to Tim if you can, please. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Oh, yes. And please, um, Ron Muir is actually on his way, probably already there. Um, urgent care. He is not doing so good. Um, he has had difficulties in the past with asthma. And you know he has the flu. It could Probably already at this point is probably pneumonia. Um, we don't know. Let's pray for him as well, okay? As well as his wife. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for this service. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your presence like this. To sing songs to you, Father. To truly worship you in spirit and in truth. You've revealed yourself to us. We believe in you. And therefore, we have made the commitment to serve you, Father. As we stated already, in spirit and in truth. And Father, our theme, our church theme for this year is to be intentional with our worship to you. And so we stand before you, Father God, in your presence. We're standing in your presence this morning, prepared to dismiss from this place. And we ask you, Father God, to please to bless us in a very special way. We've accepted the challenge as a congregation to read through the Bible in a year. And it is our task to read through the book of Exodus this week. Father, we need your grace to fulfill it, 
We need your grace to follow through with our commitment to actually read through the, through, through the Bible, Father. Help us with this, Father God. We know that it's important because we know that you perfect yourself in our lives as we read your word. When we yield ourselves to what it is you have to say to us, we experience change, lasting change, permanent change. And it affords us the opportunity to be more like Jesus Christ this side of heaven. So give us your grace, Father, so that we may study to show ourselves approved unto you. Father, I pray that you bless your people as we go our separate ways. And we pray a special prayer for Tim Lansing and his wife Janine and their family, Father. Um, we're about to start here, Father God, in the next week or so with Urban Hope LA. And we welcome this program as a church, Father God. And we support it in every way, shape, or form. But we ask you, Father God, to bless it, Father. Bless it with finances. Bless it with strength. Bless it with your anointing. Bless it with all that you have for us, Father. We need it. We're going to need your grace to follow through with it. Tim needs finances, Father, so that he can realize his immediate and long-term goals, financial, short-term, and long-term goals. He has to be able to sustain his household, to bless his family. We pray that you visit with him in that regard. And Father, finally, Father, in closing, we ask that you remember Ron Muir and his wife, Father, please visit them right now. They're in the hospital. They're at urgent care. And he's not doing so well from what we heard. Father, reach into that room wherever he is. Father, we as your people are crying out to you for him, Lord God. That you may heal his physical body. I believe it, Lord God. I believe it. I believe it. That you can do a wonderful work in his life right now. A wonderful work in his physical body right now to eradicate that sickness from his, from his body. And we thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, Amen. God bless you guys. I will see you next week. Happy New Year.